Hello, my name is Beatrice Collier. And my name is Georgina Wolfe. Welcome to the first of Middle Temple's Survive and Thrive podcasts. The Survive and Thrive series are live events put on three to four times a year by Middle Temple. The aim of each Survive and Thrive event is to provide barristers in particular, but lawyers generally, with inspiration and advice on the valuable non-legal skills they need to flourish in their careers. This podcast features two of our guests from tonight's Survive and Thrive event, Tom Tugendhat, MP, and Philippa Whipple, or Mrs Justice Whipple as I should say, and our theme is Compromise, How to Do It Effectively. We're extremely lucky to have Tom and Philippa here for the podcast to share with us some of their thoughts and advice. Tom Tugendhat MP was elected to Parliament in 2015. He is the Conservative MP for Tunbridge and Morling and currently Chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. Prior to being an MP, he had a career in the army, seeing active service in Afghanistan and has also been a journalist and consultant. We are delighted he could take the evening off from the joys of Brexit to join us. Philippa Whipple started her legal career as a solicitor at Freshfields, moved to the bar where she practised at one Crown Office row. She took silk in 2010 and then, having been a recorder since 2005, was appointed to the High Court bench in 2015, where she sits in the Queen's Bench Division. So, let's start by asking Philippa. Let's say you're negotiating on someone's behalf... Have you got any good strategies for managing that person's expectations so they don't think that you're giving up or being weak when you try to advance a compromise? Well, my experience of compromise comes from my time at the bar. I don't do very much of it now. Happily, I'm I'm (laughs) past that. So if you come and see me, your efforts at compromise have failed by and large. Um, I I think the real message about going into a compromise or a settlement meeting, if you're a lawyer, is advanced preparation. It's all about... Analysing your case, getting to grips with it, having the difficult conversation with your client in advance and working out what your bottom line is before you go in. And if you do that, you've managed your client's expectations, you've got a plan for the meeting or the the event where you're going to try and settle this case. And what, what you really want to avoid is anybody getting upset or something untoward happening. And that's probably, that would be my best strategy for avoiding a disaster. Forewarned is forearmed. Absolutely. What about you, Tom? Any thoughts? Well, uh, I've compromised in many different ways, and uh, one could argue that uh, most of my political work now is compromise, uh, certainly over various questions that are dominating our our life at the moment. But, look, I would agree with uh, Philippa that um, what the military would call intelligent preparation of the battlefield is uh, an essential part of... Uh, making sure you know where your fallback options are and uh, how you may compromise. Um, But I think that one of the important things uh, in compromise is to know what end you're seeking to achieve uh, and therefore whether or not a compromise is possible because sometimes it simply isn't. Um, And so I think being uh, honest with yourself or in your case perhaps your client as to what it is you are seeking to achieve is, is the fundamental understanding that you need to walk in with. Knowing your bottom line as yes. well, yeah. And I think for my part, I'd say that you, you must know your bottom line. You must have that clarity before you go in. But I don't think you should adhere to it too rigidly or promise anybody that that's where it's going to end up because you don't quite know what's going to come out. 
of, of the discussions. And so you do need in your back pocket a little bit of flexibility to deal with things if something does come up. So it's kind of a balance, like so many things in life. I think it's a really clear vision as you go in of where you want to get to and what you think is realistic, but just leavened with a little bit of sort of realism or common sense or flexibility. Holding firm ideas softly. Is a <laughs> much better said, much better said. <laughs> and Tom, how important do you think it is to sort of look for a way to allow the other side to climb down gracefully so um, show them the way that they can perhaps roll back a bit from their first stated position. Building a golden bridge as they say for people to cross back over. Yes uh, look I mean it's a fundamental element of uh, most areas of negotiation forgive me I'm not a lawyer so I can't speak to the legal aspect of it um, but uh, the normal intent of any agreement is to try to resolve a dispute. And if you want to actually resolve a dispute, you don't want it to be lingering, you don't want it to be coming back with extra venom in a, a year or five years' time. So actually what you're trying to do is to find a way in which everybody can at least perceive to themselves that their honour has been satisfied, that their intent has been met. And that requires understanding what they're actually trying to achieve and whether what they're trying to achieve is, for example financial or um, ego or some sort of personal gain, or whether it's, you know, uh, something more altruistic or, or, or different. And of course, different walks of life have different elements of that. Very often, what people are seeking to achieve, for example, in um, places like, you know, remote areas of Afghanistan, where quite a lot of negotiation, where I did quite a lot of negotiation, is what they're seeking to achieve is peace. Uh, they may be seeking to achieve it in one way and convincing them that actually there are alternative methods of resolving uh, these issues is an extremely important part of it. So, I mean, what we're talking about through compromise, and in fact, I suppose what we're talking about through law, is dispute resolution. How do you try and bring peace to a disputatious society? Hmm. So a question for each of you. Can you tell our listeners one really valuable lesson that you've learned from your own experience about how to approach compromising? Philippa, let's start with you. The one that, well, I, there are a number of things you learn as you go through these, um, the, these settlement meetings and uh, exchanges. The thing I always listened for when I got into a meeting, so on a good day, I had done the preparation, I'd have spoken to my clients, I'd, I'd know what the plan was, and you get into the meeting, there's a lot of dancing around and testing of each other out. The two golden words I always listened for were final offer. Once I had heard those words uttered, I knew we were really into the end game and I needed to think very seriously about what was happening. But honestly, before we got there, I, I let a lot of it just wash through. Do you believe those words when you hear them? Yes, I do. I think, but that may be a difference in a professional environment because I think if a if an opponent who's a who's a professional barrister or solicitor says those words, in my experience, you can uh, rely on those as representing the truth of it, and so you really do know you're into the end game. I I always tried not to utter them myself because I wanted the wiggle room. So there's always that little <laughs> dance about who's going to be the person who says that, and I think typically it would norm it would normally be a defendant rather than a claimant, but that, that could change depending on where the balance is in the negotiation. Um, but but that, that was what I wanted to hear. From my perspective, that's, I have to say that's interesting because I, uh, firmness of words is not something I've ever been particularly used to, but then I've negotiated in a lot of different languages, and so knowing what the trigger words are in such a formal sense, I think, 
is very hard when you're dealing with an unorthodox negotiating style, for example, in you know, tribal communities in northern Iraq, for example, or in uh, southern Afghanistan, where the, you know, the negotiating process will take many, many, many days and will be done over cups of tea and long into the late hours. And it's not, a, it, it's not formal, it's not a give and take, it's, it's a conversation that emerges into things. But I think the most important thing from my perspective is, uh, bluntly, it's not about you, uh, whether it's soldiering or, or politics. Um, it isn't about you. You may represent something, the uniform you may wear, the, the, the political badge you may hold, may represent something that people either adhere to or rebel against. But it isn't fundamentally about you. It's about, if you're going to get a resolution, it's got to be about what they want. Uh, and that's why I think um, you've got to be very careful not to take too many things personally. I think it's, it's very easy to get misled on that, particularly if, you know, if you're in politics today, social media feels very personal. Actually, people have never met you. They haven't got a clue what you're like, and it's not about you. They're rebelling against what you may or may not represent. And the same is true. I know it sounds a bit odd, but if you're getting um, attacked uh, in a combat zone in uh, Northern Helmand, for example, it's not about you. They're fighting the uniform. They're fighting what you represent. And yeah, they are trying to kill you, but it's not personal. And so when you are able to then engage in a dialogue, if you are able to engage in a dialogue, if for any reason you can diffuse the situation, then you've got to engage with it, remembering that the form of violence wasn't about you and wasn't really directed about you. That can be hard to do for very obvious reasons, but it isn't about you. So it's important not to not to sort of bear grudges and allow that to influence your position as you go forward because you need to respect the fact that um, the other side has aims that they're trying to achieve and that you just happen to be perhaps in the way of those aims right. rather than rather than being a personal focus, as so you look, say. I mean, there was a... There was a guy. I don't think uh, I don't think he's likely to sue me for libel, so I think I can say it pretty openly. There was a guy... Uh, who uh, was the deputy governor of Helmand, whose older brother had made an awful lot of money out of the opium business and the heroin business. And when the new governor came in uh, with me as his advisor, funnily enough, he took rather uh, against this uh, because we were interrupting his business, which you know, was generating quite a lot of money. But it was doing more than that, actually. It was allowing him to pay for a private army that defended his family and his family's interests. So our arrival was not just a threat to his financial interests, but actually to his life expectancy, the life expectancy of his children and the survival of his entire family. So quite understandably, he wasn't a big fan of our work. And very early on, um, he tried to kill me. He set a couple of suicide bombers uh, to attack uh, the office and he killed some of my uh, bodyguards. and. You know, as you can imagine, it, it feels very personal, quite understandably. But you have to work through and you have to work with the reality that he represents, for better or worse, a significant community within, uh, a sort of significant grouping within that community. And in that sense, you've got to try and work out how you deal with that grouping, how you deal with that issue, and don't focus on the fact that... He, He's just done X and Y. That doesn't mean forget about it. That doesn't mean let your guard down or, you know, or if the opportunity presents itself, don't deal with it in a uh, more robust fashion if that's necessary. But 
if the best way to deal with it, as it turned out it was, was to get him a seat in the Senate, and, a, and or his brother a seat in the Senate, and him a, a vice ministerial job in Kabul. You know what, that was the best resolution. And, you know, it may have felt personal, and it certainly did at moments, as you can imagine, but it, but it wasn't about me. It was about trying to build a peace process in Afghanistan. Do you have any practical tips? I mean, it must have been incredibly difficult for you to put aside your personal feelings when dealing with somebody like that. Don't quit smoking when you're... (laughs) (laughs) Do you have any tips about how to separate yourself when you do feel very personally invested or very deeply affronted by the actions of somebody on on your opposition? How to to put those feelings to one side? uh, I mean, everybody will have their own techniques for sort of closing off, calming down and coming back a few moments later and... And it's, uh, you know, it's something we've all got to do. And, um, it, you know, it's very easy in life to get riled and to get onto your high horse and to be justifiably insulted by something that somebody has done deliberately to insult you. You know, you're not wrong to be insulted. Um, but you, you're normally wrong to react. Uh, and holding back, uh, controlling your emotions and being able to deal with the situation uh, in a calm and logical manner normally uh, improves your uh, ability to get a, a, a longer standing resolution and actually normally improves your outcome too and diminishes theirs. Yeah, so keeping an eye on the bigger picture. I think that sense of dispassion is really important at whatever level you're negotiating. Um, my own experience isn't Helmand Pro- province, it's more the basement at one Crown Office Road, but nonetheless you still have moments of personal pressure where I think you can feel um, personally affronted or personally challenged and the, the really important thing is just to keep an, an eye on the end goal isn't it, is to work out what, what you're trying to get to and try and push back the personal stuff and, and keep, keep a sense of objectivity And when there is a lot on, you know, a lot at stake it's, you know it's not unusual for people to exploit weaknesses or perceived weaknesses and some of those perceived weaknesses can be uh, your identity in some way, your sexuality, your gender, in various playing on ways of trying to rile you, you know, in my case, obviously being, you know, a, a Brit abroad in a, uh, in a, a an Islamic non, you know, uh, and rather challenging culture, you can imagine. Uh, it was... It was one area, and I'm sure uh, in the basement of One Crown Court it was different things, but um, you know, people do try and play on you to get reactions out of you, to make you behave unreasonably, and to diminish your ability to achieve what you want. Yeah, we call it robing room tactics, don't we? Oh, I've always, yes, I've avoided the robing room for many years, actually, just because of that. that it's when, it's, the robing room is where you obviously go and get robed up before your case, and you typically find people who stride around men, can we say it, who stride around in robing rooms and they say things to you like, of course, the problem with your case is, and they, they, they say something just to make you start thinking, oh my God, did I miss that? Is there a problem? And so it's all to do with the sort of psychological attack before you go into court. And it's really undermining, isn't it? It's quite difficult to manage. We've all, we all can cope with oh, yes. it. It's fine. We're all there, but it's, uh, it can be tough. Same psychological game yeah. as you're describing. Yeah. And, I, and you get the same thing, actually, I find in mediation sometimes. You know, I think the, most, the best approach for mediation is to um, be incredibly friendly and open. Mm. But I've definitely had mediations where I have been almost pushed out of rooms because they haven't wanted my friendly openness to come across to the, the other side's clients, that sort of thing. 
Um, so I think you can see it even in even in the sort of conservative. You can. Environment. I mean, the crosswinds are sometimes quite difficult to figure out, aren't they? Uh, I'm sure the right way of approaching domestic um, negotiations. I mean, Tom's talking about environments where I think very different factors may come to play. But part of your role must be to work out what, what's your environment and how you're going to handle it best. And domestically, I'm sure keeping a really cool head and keeping everybody on good terms is a strong way to start. I mean, it's really disappointing if sometimes that's not what's wanted because somebody sees a tactical advantage in creating discord. Maybe yeah. that does happen. Yeah. General Jim Mattis had a very good line for it when he was a four-star uh, US Marine Corps general. He said, be friendly, be polite, be welcoming, but have a plan to kill everybody there. <laughs> <laughs> I can even recognise that. that in you. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. The smiling assassin. <laughs> Um, I wanted to come back to something that you said earlier, Philippa. You said that it's really important to manage your client before you enter the negotiation where you think you may need to compromise. What if your client feels aggrieved or to some extent betrayed by the fact that you're suggesting a compromise? How do you maintain their trust if you're suggesting something that isn't really what, well, it, it isn't their f primary goal or it's not what they would have wanted. So what the question is, what do you do with the deluded client who thinks <laughs> they're going to win at trial and wants you to press on even though you've given them frank advice that this is not a good idea? Well, yes, I mean, there are levels of delusion, but what do you do with the client who's, who's I mean, perhaps not deluded, but perhaps just optimistic? Yeah. Well, it, look, this is all part of my conversation, isn't it? And I think part of the skill of being a professional is judging your, your patient if you're a doctor, your client if you're a lawyer. You know, everybody has to manage the amount of information they give to the person who, who is instructing them. And it may just mean you ha need to have a longer conversation. You may need to take them to the aspects of their case where you think there is weakness and show them on a piece of paper why you think that that is going to be difficult. Um, I think you have to invoke the fact that you have experience of how things play in court. Yes. You've been there before, you had a case like this last year, and this is what the judge decided, or somebody in your chambers had an experience. So you know, in the end, they're coming to you because they want the advice and they want, they want your experience. So I think you just have to square up to it and, and give them the advice. We all know that in the end, if they don't want to accept your advice, that is a matter for them, and that's, that's that. But uh, you know, the trick is try not to back yourself into that corner and to keep the dialogue open so they understand exactly what you're doing and you're not losing face or appearing weak. Quite the contrary. You're giving them good advice and they want to rely on it. Brilliant. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you both, Tom and Philippa. If you've enjoyed this podcast, or if you feel that a happy and successful life at the bar is not just about knowing the law and being an excellent advocate, then please do check out the Middle Temple website for more information about the Survive and Thrive series. You can watch previous events which have been filmed and take a look at what's coming up and book tickets. And you can watch tonight's event with our podcast guests, Tom Tugendhat and Mrs Justice Whipple, and an extra guest, Adam Kay, the author of the hilarious and best-selling This Is Going To Hurt. Come and see what we're doing. Mm -hmm.